Hey everyone and welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White and I'm Director of the Institute. Thank you to everyone who's joining us here in the room and online for this keynote speech and question and answer with Sir James Bevan, who is Chief Executive of the Environment Agency. A few housekeeping points before we kick off. We will be live tweeting uh, from IFG events and using the hashtag IFGClimate, so please do follow uh, and tweet along. <clears throat> if you are online, do start sending in your questions via Slido. I'll be picking those up on the uh, iPad. Um, if you're in the room, please do start thinking of any questions you would like to ask Sir James. Uh, we will have a video and a sound recording of the event on our website uh, within uh, 24 hours of the event uh, on, on the website and also on YouTube. So, uh, Sir James Bevan uh, joined the Environment Agency in 2015 after a long, illustrious career in uh, government in the Foreign Office with postings in India, in uh, Washington, Paris and Brussels. Um, he also had a stint as COO of the Foreign Office. I'm delighted to welcome you here today and I look forward to hearing your remarks. Thank you very much. Well, uh, Hannah, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for having me. I, uh, I don't know if you read the morning papers this morning, but they uh, say I'm going to say several things. So I thought I'd better say them um, uh, to make sure that history is, uh, is aligned with reality. Um, first thing I want to say is that climate change is real. Um, and it isn't something uh, to take lightly um, because it's actually the biggest threat uh, there is. Um, but it's often talked about uh, in, uh, in the same way, in the same rather techie words, uh, which can cause people with short attention spans, including me, to kind of drift off and, and stop listening. So I thought today what I'd do was talk to you um, about climate in a different way um, by using uh, a fairy story, which is Cinderella, uh, as an analogy. And to be honest, uh, I'm not sure that this really works, and you can be the judge of it, because as you'll see, it requires a fairly torturous use of the, of the story. But despite, or even maybe because of that, I hope that you will remember the point. Uh, now, Cinderella is not a real person, but let's start with somebody who is the United Nations Secretary General. Quote, we are on the highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator, unquote. Uh, those are his words uh, at COP27 uh, a couple of weeks ago. Now, I know that's not that cheery, but I will get to the good news uh, in a minute. But I did want to point out first that many people are already living in climate hell. Um, in the past two decades, uh, we know that climate-related disasters have nearly doubled compared with the previous 20 years. They have killed thousands of people and forced hundreds of millions of people to flee their homes. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change now estimates that nearly half of humanity, so nearly four billion people, are living in a climate-related danger area. And this isn't just uh, an issue for people in faraway places. This is an issue for us here in this country. Uh, we've had 4,000 heat-related deaths recorded in England since 2018. Uh, drought has threatened our water supply this year and threatens it next year, unless it rains a lot over the next few months. Uh, we know that sea level rise and coastal erosion uh, are putting many of our own communities at serious risk. And flood events that we used to predict would happen once every 100 years are now nearly annual occurrences. Now, I'm not telling you all this to shock you into a state of uh, paralysis. In fact, Despite all that stuff, uh, I'm actually uh, a climate optimist. And let me explain why that is. Uh, I'm a climate optimist 
because um, it's clear that uh, this story can have a happy ending. Um, uh, tackling the climate emergency is not actually rocket science. Uh, we know what the problem is. It's greenhouse gas emissions from human activity uh, that are warming the planet and changing the climate. Um, and we know what the solution is. Uh, we need to stop the emissions uh, of those gases, uh, which is called mitigation. Uh, and we need to reshape our places and our infrastructure and our economy um, so that we can live safely and well in a climate-changed world, for which the technical term is adaptation. So good news is we actually know what we have to do. We just need to do it. And in many respects, I think we are starting to do it. Uh, we have begun to make substantial progress on the first side of the climate coin, which is mitigation. And that's happening at international level, it's happening at national level, and it's happening at local and personal level. So um, internationally, um, we are seeing, or starting to see, the global cooperation that we need to tackle what is quintessentially uh, a global problem through the UN COP process. Um, under which, as you all know, um, all countries are now committed to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions and trying to keep global temperature rise to no more than 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Is that process perfect? No, I know that because I was a former diplomat. Uh, is it going as fast or as far as we like? No. But is it essential um, and is it making progress on reducing the causes of climate change? Yes and yes. We're seeing many countries taking action at national level to bring down their carbon emissions. The UK deserves credit, I think, for leadership here. Uh, in 2019, uh, as many of you know, the UK government became the first government uh, and we became the first major economy in the world to legislate to reach net zero emissions by 2020. And since then, we've cut our emissions by more than any other G20 country. That didn't happen by accident. Uh, the Environment Agency is playing a big part uh, in that process. Um, we regulate down the emissions of uh, more than half of the carbon emitters in this country. Uh, we run something called the UK Emissions Trading Scheme, which caps and will ultimately reduce the emissions of aviation, steel industries and other heavy uh, industries. Uh, and we're trying to walk the walk ourselves with a commitment that we've made in the Environment Agency to become a net zero organisation by 2030. So the mitigation side of climate uh, is, I think, getting a lot of attention, a lot of airtime, uh, and getting to net zero is something that most people say they want, and it's something that almost everybody knows about. So, metaphor alert, uh, you could say that mitigation is the Prince Charming uh, of the climate emergency. But there is a Cinderella in this story as well, which is adaptation. Because even if we stopped tonight all the emissions uh, of greenhouse gases, um, those that have occurred over the last 250 years or so mean that the climate will continue to change for many more decades, which is why the other side of the climate coin, adaptation to make us more resilient to uh, live in that climate change world, is just as important as the mitigation which net zero delivers. And here, ladies and gentlemen, I think the story is less good. So whilst uh, we do have uh, an internationally recognised global goal on adaptation, which was established at the Paris conference in 2015, progress on that has been slow. Uh, and the complexity of articulating and measuring and implementing good adaptation uh, has meant that it's been largely ignored uh, in favour of uh, mitigation. Which is one reason why uh, in 2020 um, only about a third of global climate projects were related to uh, adaptation. Uh, and why uh, the UK Committee on Climate Change, which also loves uh, a dodgy metaphor, has described adaptation as the Cinderella of climate change, still sitting in rags by the stove, under-resourced, underfunded, and often ignored. And that has consequences. Um, 
because unless we can start closing the widening gap between the action that we need on adaptation and the worsening risk uh, of climate, various uh, ugly sisters will rear their heads. We will see significant growing threats to our habitats. We will see significant growing threats to our soil health, our crops, our power systems, our physical and mental health, our infrastructure, and our economy. And the longer we leave it uh, to adapt, the bigger the bill that we're going to be handing to our children, because it will be them who will then be forced to pay for the deterioration of our climate-vulnerable infrastructure and the disruptive consequences of climate change. Now, unless we take further action to adapt, uh, let's take a very plausible, I'm afraid, um, 2% uh, degree rise by the end of the century. The damages that uh, will be inflicted uh, on our country um, will be 27% higher by 2050 and 40% higher by 2080. And that is not, frankly, what the next generation needs on top of the cost of living crisis. However, the good news is that Cinders uh, may get to go to the ball after all, because I do think uh, a new chapter is in sight, one in which we actually are putting as much emphasis on adaptation uh, and resilience as we are now putting on mitigation. Uh, the COP26 in Glasgow uh, last year started the process of transforming that global goal on adaptation into concrete actions. Uh, the agreement in Egypt uh, a week or two ago um, on a new funding arrangement for loss and damage was gonna, will help those countries that are most affected by climate disasters. And those negotiations also prompted new commitments from the rich world to help, uh, including from the UK, which has pledged to triple uh, its international funding for climate adaptation. Uh, meanwhile, back here in the UK, uh, the government is gearing up and we in the Environment Agency are helping them to publish its next five-year national adaptation programme. And that sets out the actions which the government and others are going to take to adapt here in England to the effects of climate. And we all think that will be uh, and needs to be the most ambitious plan yet. And my hope, and here I'm talking directly to all of you and everybody online, is that the people in this room and the virtual uh, guests that we have here today that you uh, will help shape uh, and deliver that adaptation plan because done right, it will benefit uh, all of us. Uh, no Whitehall department, uh, no public sector organization, um, no private sector business is immune to the climate challenge. All of us uh, conduct uh, activities or deliver services that need to be climate resilient. We all have or depend on assets and systems which need to withstand climate impact. And we all have, all of us, uh, a duty to protect uh, the people that we serve from the natural disasters that climate is bringing. Uh, and I do think the UK government uh, has a leading role to play in this, and it's playing it. But in one sense, uh, governments uh, here and elsewhere can only be the fairy godmother of uh, climate adaptation, because while governments can change some things, they can't change everything. Uh, for that, we need every section of society to play a part uh, in making us more resilient. Uh, businesses, NGOs, each one of us personally. Now, people worry about the cost of adaptation, particularly at a time uh, when there is a cost of living crisis. So let me just say a word about that. One, uh, adapting to the climate crisis is astonishingly good uh, value for money because every pound that we invest uh, in becoming more resilient will save us up to 10 pounds uh, in terms of damages and create 10 pounds worth of net economic benefit. Secondly, uh, most of the money uh, for adaptation isn't gonna come from government or the state. It will come from the private sector. Uh, and that's because the volume of money, uh, the resources that we're gonna need to mobilize only exist 
in the private sector. And it's because smart private sector organisations know that it's smart business for them to invest in measures that uh, reduce the extent and impact of climate change because that drives innovation, uh, business and ultimately uh, business success. Um, again, the environment agency plays a part in adaptation. Um, uh, we're doing it now. You may not be noticing it, and if you are noticing it, it will have failed. Um, we're keeping everybody in this room uh, safe, as we are keeping uh, two or three other million people uh, here uh, in London right now because of one of the major flood defences which we own and operate, the Thames Barrier, uh, a few miles from here. Uh, we have thousands of those flood defences that we are building uh, more of up and down the country. They work. Uh, over the last few uh, years, we have seen progressively fewer incidents of serious property flooding, and that's as a result of the interventions that we've put in place on flood defence, um, which is itself an intervention making us more resilient to climate. Um, we work on drought, the opposite of flooding. Uh, in this country, you can have both at the same time, um, and we're working with the water companies and the government to make sure that we are investing uh, in the infrastructure that we need and the other mitigations that we need to make us water secure uh, in 20 years' time. Uh, and lastly, we also play a role in trying to uh, help create better places, which are more resilient places for people in wildlife, because we have a key role in planning advice. So, um, final uh, thing that I want to just talk to you about in terms of the EA's action is sort of short-term interventions to protect life and limb. So, we're coming up to winter, there is a greater likelihood of flooding as we go into the, uh, the winter season. The Environment Agency is what we call a Category 1 incident responder, which means that when uh, flooding or uh, another environmental incident uh, threatens, uh, we work with the police, with the local authorities and the other emergency responders uh, to support those communities. Uh, and we do that 24-7, uh, and I think we do it uh, well. Finally, uh, how does this story end? Um, uh, well, uh, like Cinderella and uh, Prince Charming, uh, I think mitigation and adaptation need to go hand in hand if we are going to have that happy ending. Um, and the best interventions uh, on climate change do both things at the same time. They mitigate its future extent and they adapt to its impact. Example, um, the Environment Agency favours uh, what we call nature-based solutions. So uh, we plant a lot of trees. Um, uh, trees planted in the right way, um, uh, A, uh, reduce flood risk because they slow the flow of water coming down into rivers. Uh, B, um, cool those waters, um, which otherwise would overheat and damage the wildlife, which is an effect uh, of climate change. And C, are a carbon sink, so they absorb um, carbon and thereby reduce uh, the extent and impact of uh, climate change. I think uh, I should stop because I think I've probably stretched Cinderella metaphor way beyond uh, what it or you can bear. But let me uh, conclude um, uh, by uh, coming back to the real world and coming back to um, COP26 last year and uh, quote you the words of a leader who is always worth uh, listening to, Mia Motley, who is the Prime Minister of Barbados. And at that summit last year, she said, our world stands at a fork in the road, one no less significant than when the United Nations was formed in 1945. But then, the majority of countries here did not exist. We exist now. The difference is we want to exist 100 years from now. Now, we in the environment agency share that ambition for, for the world. We too want a happily ever after ending, um, a climate resilient world that is not just still here, but a better world than the one that we currently have. Uh, for everybody uh, and for all uh, the species on this planet. Um, the Cinderella story does have a happy ending. 
Uh, and I think if we do the right things now, uh, we can have one too. With that, I will stop before I turn into a pumpkin. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Lots there uh, to dig into. I'm going to ask a couple of questions myself. Then I'm going to take questions uh, from which are starting to come in online. Thank you to everyone online. Please keep sending those in. Uh, and everyone in the room, please uh, start thinking about your questions. We'll have a waving mic which will go around the room and I'll take questions in groups of two or three. If you can tell us your name and where you're from, that's really helpful. But to kick off, uh, so you mentioned uh, the Climate Change Committee um, and you talked a lot, uh, you focused today, I think it was on adaptation. The CCC has said adaptation has gone backwards um, in, in recent years. Why do you think that is? Okay. Um, so first, I can't resist saying that, although you're absolutely right, the CCC did say that adaptation uh, is not going forwards and that we need to do a lot better. One thing it did say was that we were doing, the country was doing well on flood defence. Uh, so um, the Dear Old Environment Agency at least got a name check for being on the right side of the argument. More broadly, I think, you know, why is adaptation the, 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 the Cinderella? Um, I think partly because it's a much more, um, it's a much broader and more amorphous thing than mitigation. Mitigation is basically, it's just about stopping carbon, right? You need to stop emitting it, and to the extent that we've emitted it, you need to reabsorb it. And that's quite, that's quite a simple, narrow thing to do, including technically. But adaptation is about everything. It's about changing uh, the way we live. It's about changing our economy. It's about changing our buildings. It's about changing our infrastructure. So in a way, it's a much bigger thing to do. It's a much broader thing to do. And um, because it's about everything, uh, everyone's responsible. And the risk you know, in any uh, system is that if everyone's responsible, nobody's uh, responsible. So I think that poses not just in this country, but you know, for governments around the world, a challenge as to how you, how do you get your hands around this really big issue? Because not only do you need um, you know, governments to be uh, on it and to have targets and mechanisms to ensure that each country makes progress on adaptation, you need to bring in, as I was saying earlier, you need to bring in businesses, uh, you need to bring in uh, NGOs, you need to create incentives for ordinary people to change the way that they Operate. So it's a much bigger thing to do in that sense. Um, I guess the final thing I'd say is, but actually, it's a much more life-enhancing thing to do. Because uh, if you think about it, um, mitigation, right, stopping, it's essentially about making, stopping the world get, get less bad than it would otherwise be. So it's a fairly sort of negative thing. Um, but adaptation, if we do it right, it, it can be about making the world better than it already is. Because the right kind of adaptation, you know, whether you're building um, houses or investing in natural flood defense, uh, which will create beauty uh, and benefits for wildlife, and those things can be a net benefit. They can create better places for people, for wildlife. They can drive uh, innovation, which will drive growth. Um, so uh, it's, it's harder to do, but in a way the prize uh, is even bigger. Okay, so we at the Institute think a lot about sort of complex policy problems, in particular the difficulty of cross-cutting policy, which is exactly what you're describing here, mm -hmm. a problem which is diffuse, which cuts right across government. How do you think government can actually, and, and I'd be interested in some, some, some real specifics here, like what can government actually do to get a grip on adaptation? And do you think it's something that, that ministers and civil servants have really got their heads around in the same way that they've got their heads around mitigation? I think um, uh, increasingly um, governments and this government are getting their heads around adaptation. 
And we saw that in some of the things that I mentioned that the Prime Minister announced uh, in Egypt a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think the formula you know, for any government is, is essentially the same. Um, you need uh, leadership from the top, so you need uh, the President or Prime Minister of each country to be saying, this is really, really important, because people take their cues in government and in business and more broadly from what political leaders are saying, and I do think we're starting to see that political leadership, cross-party political leadership. I don't think it's just uh, one party in this country that uh, is supporting work on adaptation. Um, so you need leadership, um, uh, you need uh, targets so that you know what you're trying to do because what gets measured gets done, and you need a mechanism to make sure that those targets are, uh, are monitored and delivered and chased when they're not being delivered. And, you know, one thing that British governments are quite good at is, is kind of the, the machinery of government. You know, we do have cabinet committees that oversee cross-cutting uh, policy issues, and even though one minister may be responsible for delivery, we have had mechanisms in the past that have ensured cross-government uh, action. Uh, and when that happens, uh, you see a response from the civil service that delivers the outcomes. So I think, we, again, you know, we, know, we, we, know, we, know, we know what mechanisms you would need to deliver really effective adaptation. I think we are building uh, those mechanisms. And I think the other thing that's going to help, which is another reason why I'm an optimist, is there's massive popular pressure uh, for um, uh, governments uh, and politicians to tackle to tackle the climate emergency. You know, I've seen that even in the seven years that I've been chief executive of the Environment Agency, spend a lot of time when flooding happens and it's really traumatic for people going to those places and talking to people. And everyone says, this is different. This is not how it was uh, a few years ago. Something is different, something has changed and we need action to deal with it. And you know, one thing I do know about politicians and I've worked with a lot of them is they pay very close attention to what the voters want. Yeah, political will. Um, so you talk about the EA's role in flooding. Obviously, that's um, uh, certain sorts of flooding, not other sorts of flooding. There's a, there's a report out today from the National <coughs> Infrastructure Commission which calls on, well, highlights the risk to, I think, six, over 600,000 properties from surface water flooding, talks about mm. problems with drainage and so on and mm. new developments, and, talks, and suggests the EA should have more of a role mm -hmm. uh, in, in trying to, to, to mitigate those sorts of risks. What's mm -hmm. your response to that? Yeah. Um, that, uh, firstly, um, there, are there are different kinds of flooding. Um, there is uh, flooding from rivers, uh, for which we're responsible, if they're major rivers. There's flooding from the coast, um, uh, which is the most dangerous of all, um, uh, for which we are also responsible. Um, there's groundwater flooding, which is where the water comes up from aquifers, for which we are also responsible. And there is so-called surface water flooding, which is essentially when there's too much rain for the drains, and it can't all disappear, and it comes out and appears in the streets, and we see the scenes that we've seen in London and elsewhere. Um, and uh, one in six homes in this country are at risk of one or more of those kinds of flooding, and the single biggest uh, source of flooding is surface water flooding. Uh, and it's getting worse because, A, climate change is bringing um, more violent weather, bigger storms, more heavy downpours, and B, um, more people and more development mean more concrete, and therefore less ability for that rain to drain away when it rains. And that's why we're seeing uh, more and more uh, surface water flooding. Um, we do not have the lead responsibility as the Environment Agency for dealing with surface water flooding. Uh, that's for local authorities. But our view is that it's, it's all water, right? And we don't, so we don't say, look, it's is surface water flooding, so we're not going to come and help. Uh, we will normally, when there is a serious surface water flooding uh, risk, uh, we will deploy our people with the local authority to try and manage it. And we do provide maps, uh, which you can find online, just pop in your postcode, 
that will tell you uh, whether your home is at risk of surface water flooding as well as all the other kinds of flooding that I've described. Um, would it make sense for the Environment Agency to have a bigger role in it as the uh, National Infrastructure Commission have recommended? I think it would. Um, uh, it would require additional resources because if we want stuff to get done then we need the resources to do it. I don't think I would want to take away though the lead responsibility from local uh, authorities for tackling uh, surface water flooding. I mean A because they know intimately their own specific circumstances and B because a big part of the solution is in their gift it's about planning decisions that are taken locally you know, rightly or wrongly, uh, which will increase or diminish uh, surface water flooding. You know, and one of the big interventions, which government can also help drive, is encouraging what we call sustainable drainage to be put in place, either in existing developments or new developments, which means uh, when it rains, all that rain doesn't go straight into the, into the sewers or onto the streets. It will disappear uh, into grass or roofs um, and so attenuate the flood risk. So I think there are, there are mitigations for uh, surface water flooding that local authorities can put in place and that national governments can also think about. Turning to the Environment Agency's wider responsibilities, um, there's been a lot of criticism recently on enforcement. Um, do you feel that the EA has the resources you need to enforce adequately? And I'm thinking now, and there's, this question, there's a question that's come in um, from Jonathan F., um, who says, in the wake of impending public expenditure constraints, how do you safeguard the EA's resources and, and core um, capacity? Mm. It's an interesting thing, regulation, isn't it? That nobody likes regulation, you know, red tape, um, uh, until they need it. And my experience is that um, uh, the challenge that we have is that more and more people want us to intervene uh, in protecting them from something than ever before. Um, so, you know, classic example, waste sites, there are a thousand of them around the country. We regulate those. Uh, we're seeing more and more demands from local communities to do what we can to reduce odour, noise, other nuisance from, from waste sites. That's a good problem to have, um, and I think it kind of validates the principle of robust regulation, but it does require resources, which are always going to be uh, tightly stretched. Um, we, you know, we will always do the best with the resources that we have, and uh, we recognise that uh, there are constraints on public expenditure, um, actually, the Environment Agency's budget is going up over the next couple of years, uh, and what the Chancellor said last month means that it will continue uh, on that upward trajectory. Obviously, uh, demands are also going up, so the challenge is can we keep pace uh, with that? Um, I think um, uh, we have to re remember, as we think about um, enforcement, I mean, A, that it works, right? I mean, our, our, our standard approach to regulation is... Um, uh, advice and guidance uh, first, so we'll always ask nicely and we will always work with uh, an industry or a farmer to help them comply with the law and that usually does work and most farmers and most businesses do want to comply with the law for all sorts of reasons and they do. There's actually a very high compliance rate with our overall regulation but with the small minority who don't want to do what the law requires, who are despoiling the environment, we will go up through a series of increasingly robust interventions up to and including taking them to court up to and including seeking prison sentences if they are, uh, if they are really serious uh, offences. And we do know that that has uh, a deterrent effect um, and we will continue with that to the extent that we are uh, resourced uh, to do it. I think the final thing I would say is um, the Environment Agency you know, gets a lot of criticism for failing to stop certain organisations, certain companies, um, polluting and you know every public organization ought to be held to account you know so 
constructive, fair criticism, I'm absolutely up for, and no organisation is perfect, including the Environment Agency. But in this criticism, we sometimes miss the point that the people who are responsible for uh, the pollution in our waters or in our soil or in our air are the people who pollute our water, our soil and our air, um, not the Environment Agency. The Environment Agency is there to try and stop them and we do the very best we can. And you know, I just want to give a shout out to the women and men of the Environment Agency, a lot of whom um, go up against some of the worst people in the country, including organised criminals, in order to protect you and 50 million other people from the effects of their crime. And you know, they deserve support and credit uh, more than anyone else. So I noticed you say there, you, uh, you, you, you pursue those people, you, 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 know, you bring the, the law to bear to the extent you're resourced to do so. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the EA should have more resource to do that? You can always do more with more. Um, uh, we have two, two uh, main sources of resource. One is grant from the government, and that's always, you know, that's always been under pressure from successive governments. We understand that, and we always do the best we can. Uh, with that grant. But the second major source of resource, which actually on the environment side is bigger than what we get from government, is the money that um, uh, organisations who we regulate pay us for the costs of regulating them. So we, when we regulate a water or sewage company, um, they pay us various charges which we use to make sure that they are abiding by the law. Um, and that's a pretty effective uh, way of uh, funding. And I think it's, it's right actually that um, uh, the polluter should pay. Right? I mean, the, ta the taxpayer is supporting us to fight um, polluters because that's a general public good to protect everyone. But as I said, the people who are causing the pollution are the ones who ought to be paying the cost of stopping them doing it. So um, rather than sort of focusing too much on, you know, can we have more or less government grant at a time of uh, what we know is, 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 is pressure on the public finances, I think one more, a more fruitful conversation is... Um, should we be charging more to those companies um, that we are regulating in order that they are paying the full cost of us being able to regulate them and if we need to prosecute them? And that's a debate that we're having right now with, within government. So, <clears throat> alert techie IFG question. Um, <laughs> you described in your speech uh, the responsibilities of the Environment Agency. Having worked there now, I think, for seven years, do you feel that it makes sense for those responsibilities to be delivered at arm's length from government uh, in an agency? So, what are the pros and cons? Yes. Um, so the, there are different kinds of arm's length bodies. The Environment Agency is what's called a non-departmental public body. So although we are largely funded by the government, we have our own uh, governance uh, structures, um, we have our own legal personality, uh, we make our own decisions about what we do, um, uh, and uh, we are particularly assiduous in ensuring that we uh, make genuinely independent decisions when we're operating as a regulator. So a decision about whether to um, you know, turn off a farmer's uh, water abstraction license, which, which we have sometimes made if that abstraction license is damaging a protected nature site, that's classically something that you wouldn't want a politician to make. Uh, you would want uh, an independent organisation based on the law to make that decision objectively. Uh, and you would expect that organisation, when it does that, to get flack from all sides. Uh, and we do. So we get flack um, from uh, green NGOs for most of the decisions we make, which they argue have not gone far, and far, far enough and fast enough. Uh, and we get flack from businesses uh, and others uh, who we are regulating or who argue that we are 
um, making it harder and possible for them to do business. Um, and I think um, one of the arguments for an arm's length body is, um, you know, let the arm's length body make that decision and let the arm's length body um, uh, absorb the flak without worrying about whether it's going to get re-elected. Um, so taking those decisions out of, the, out of the political arena are, I think, beneficial. Um, I think um, you don't want any arm's length body to, be, to have such a, such a long arm uh, that it doesn't have any relationship with government. Um, we work, uh, you know, we're funded mostly by government. Uh, we work daily uh, with uh, the government, not just with DEFRA, the Environment Department, but across the whole uh, of government. And those relationships are pretty good. And uh, we operate in a policy space that is set by government, as it should be. Democratic elected politicians should decide the policy, not me. Um, and uh, we cooperate very effectively on day-to-day -day practical issues. So I think, I think it kind of works. I think there is always going to be a tension uh, in any arm's length body government relationship because um, uh, you know, who's going to take that decision? Who's going to be responsible for that decision? Is that the right decision? Uh, is this one that a democratic elected politician should be taking or is this one that an uh, unelected bureaucrat should be taking? But you know, that goes with the territory. And I, you know, so I, I think there, is, there, are, there are good arguments for arm's length bodies to do specific things in this space. Thank you. OK, I'm going to take some questions from the room now. My colleague Lauren has got a mic. There's a gentleman in the row here. Uh, James Kidner, formerly of the Foreign Office, now working in a much more foreign world of technology. Um, a splendid speech, and thank you. Um, I want to pick up Jonathan F., the online person who says that essentially that you run a department that has a bit of an image problem. So my background is in farming, and I understand that there are tensions there. Um, if you had a wand to pick up your splendid metaphor and could point it at a particular pumpkin across your department or across the sort of space in which you're operating, what would turn into a coach? <laughs> we'll take another couple of questions before you can reflect on this gentleman here. Hi, good morning. Um, Patrick King from CGI. I'd like to ask you, what does good look like when you refer to adaptation, particularly with regard to industry and the private sector? What more can we do to actually achieve the goals and the vision that you outlined? Thank you. And colleague here. Um, it's quite notable, uh, Jill Rush, I'm a colleague of Hannah's. Uh, it's quite notable when you talked about adaptation, you said the area we're doing quite well on is flooding. Of course, flooding is DEFRA's responsibility and DEFRA is the adaptation lead. Um, you know, in a sense, you're facing the challenges that we faced when I was at DEFRA uh, 15 years ago or so, that DEFRA didn't manage to drive much progress on climate change before it had the Climate Change Act and it actually moved into a different department. Uh, should someone else in government own adaptation? Do you want to have a go at those? Okay. Um, so, James, good to see you again. Um, uh, thanks for the question. Um, if I could wave my wand over one pumpkin, which one would it be? Um, I think the most, the most powerful pumpkin of all is, is what people, ordinary people, think and want. And uh, the thing I would like most, and which is why I spend some of my time doing speeches like that, is for uh, everyone around, not just in this country, but around the world, uh, to recognise that climate change is the main thing and to uh, both demand action from their own governments and their own businesses to tackle it and to take action in their own personal lives because 
that's the most powerful intervention of all, right? And I think we can, and I think we're seeing that behavior change across the world, not just in, in well developed countries. So I would wave my wand over 8 billion people and invite them to stand up uh, and speak out. Um, Patrick's question was, what does good look like and how can uh, business in particular um, help? I've seen some really good examples on, the, uh, on, on both the mitigation and the adaptation side of smart business innovating, innovating for its own interests, but innovating in a way that's beneficial to all of us. So um, example, I was in uh, Avonmouth a couple of months ago uh, looking at a company which um, takes um, hazardous waste, which is a nasty thing, uh, which would otherwise be sent to landfill at great expense, uh, and processes that hazardous waste into non-hazardous resource, little plastic pellets, uh, like plastic, which are then used for things like tarmacking roads. It's a brilliant example of how you, you turn a problem into a solution. And the beauty of this is that um, the whole process is net zero negative. It actually takes carbon out of the air. So it's a company that is innovating its way to success, but also contributing to tackling the, you know, and, and doing very well. So, you know, smart companies uh, will want to tackle the climate emergency because it's good business. Um, Jill's question was about, um, do we need, you know, do we need a different lead across Whitehall? Um, I think, I think, um, uh, it, it, I think, as I said in my, in my other remarks, the most important thing for um, success is, is the political leadership that shows that the main thing is climate, and I think we are seeing that increasingly uh, around the world. I think you do need a mechanism to deliver it. Um, I think um, I work very closely with DEFRA. Um, uh, my DEFRA colleagues work very hard uh, on climate adaptation, and I know that Therese Coffey, the new Secretary of State, is keen that that should go forward, and we will do everything we can to support her. Um, I think there is a debate to be had uh, underneath your question about uh, whether it makes sense, as currently we have, to split responsibilities. At the moment, BASE, who are responsible for energy and industry, are responsible for mitigation, uh, and DEFRA, um, who have a bunch of responsibilities, uh, are responsible for adaptation. And I, think, I think there is a debate to be had about whether that is the most effective uh, way to deliver. Thank you very much. Uh, a couple more questions in the room. The lady here. Hello, Sophie Kemp from Kingsley Napley, Head of Public Law. Um, is there a greater role for professionalising some of the um, professions involved in the planning process, for example? I've seen a number of quite poor flood risk assessments mm. which have then been looked at by the local authority. Perhaps they don't have the skills or resources to look at them with the level of criticism that they might need mm. to. Mm. Um, I just wondered in terms of regulation whether those environmental consultants might be brought into regulation and um, to help professionalise them and ensure that we don't have some of the poor flood risk yeah. assessments that we yeah. do. There's a broader but related question which is coming online from Julie M. How do we encourage organisations to mainstream climate risk assessment into their business as usual uh, risk assessments? Too many seem to see climate uncertainty as fundamentally different to usual business uncertainty. Uh, and then there's a question here. Um, Robert Morland, I'm actually a former member of the European Parliament, but I think the relevant point of my background is I live in Gloucester, so you probably will guess what I'm going to ask about. Um, and actually on its city council, and I would always say, actually, although we may be responsible, I think we have very good relations. My question is quite simply, how are you going to, to translate this in terms of informing the relevant people on the ground? i.e. are we going to look for tougher decisions, 
tougher advice from you. I should end by saying I'm also on the regional board of the Canal and River Trust. And the advisory board of Lydney Harbour, which you run. Lots <laughs> of interest there. So risk <laughs> assessment and okay. responsibility. Um, so I think, was it <laughs> Sophie? Um, so I think you're right that uh, at the moment we are seeing some quite poor decision-making, um, uh, which is building in greater risk in the face of climate change. Um, uh, example, um, we, uh, we are a statutory consultee on planning decisions, and uh, we sometimes see proposals to do things that we think are inherently risky, like build a school in a floodplain, uh, or um, uh, classic example on the East Coast, um, allow a big caravan site to stay open throughout the winter with people living in it at a time when there's a very high, there's a heightened storm risk. And as I said earlier, East Coast storm surges are the most deadly of all flooding. Um, but, so bad news, there are some poor decisions being made. Um, uh, good news, when we intervene, we usually win. Uh, 97 or 98% of local authority plan decisions are ultimately in line with our advice. Um, I think you're right with your underlying premise that you know, the, 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 the people not making these decisions, as it were, willfully, often they're making them because they're not, they don't quite understand the equities. So there's a role for us uh, and a role for others in helping support people to take those professional decisions. We've actually tried to professionalise our own staff. So um, having made the climate emergency the main thing for the Environment Agency, we've produced um, uh, various online learning modules that we've asked all our 11,000 staff to complete. So our own people are more climate literate and are better able to talk to planning authorities and others about, about that. I think that's a really important intervention. Um, how to mainstream uh, climate into business, day-to-day -day sort of business planning. Um, I think it's kind of happening. Uh, I, I, I actually meet very few uh, businesses now that don't get it about the impacts of climate uh, and most of them have plans, some more credible than others, to, to tackle that climate risk. Um, and that's happening because, you know, you just need to look at reality. I, I remember having a conversation with a, uh, the boss of a big water company uh, a while back and, and um, he said, yeah, um, uh, if, if, if I don't have any water, I don't have a business. Um, and so he, he is developing plans to ensure that he, he and his company, which runs quite a lot of the water supply in England, uh, are, are climate, uh, climate ready. Um, and I don't think, you know, I think this is mostly about education and leadership. I don't think we need, you know, more laws or, you know, financial incentives to encourage companies to um, ensure that they are adapting to climate because I think it's just good business sense and they can afford to do it because the returns of doing it are much bigger than the costs uh, of not doing it. Um, Finally, um, uh, the question about um, uh, when will the EA take tougher decisions? Um, uh, we're always trying to balance, uh, and this gets back to the question about you know, the difference between, a, if you like, a politician and a, the head of an arm's length body. We're always trying to balance a range of factors in the decisions that we take. Um, we will always consult all the affected parties. Um, on any decision, whether it's, you know, are we going to build a flood defence there? Um, are we going to um, uh, approve a planning approval here? Um, are we going to turn off a water licence there? And when we consult everyone, all those interested parties, we will always get different and contradictory views. Um, and then we have to make a judgement about what the right answer is. And what we try to do is to, uh, as far as possible, you know, uh, hit all the key bases, you know, 
we do want to uh, protect nature. That's one of our fundamental purposes. And if something is going to damage it, then ultimately we have to stop it. But we also want to um, uh, help unlock uh, inclusive uh, and sustainable growth because the country needs it. And unless we have that growth and that wealth, we won't be able to pay what we need to pay to do all the things that I've been talking about today. Um, and we want to make sure that we have regard to you know, other local interests. So you know, in some cases, communities may be at flood risk, um, but they don't want a wall between them and the river. They, they live where they live because it's beautiful. And if we build a wall between their homes and the river, it's not beautiful anymore. And they are prepared to take the risk of managing flood risk in a different way. And that's ultimately, I think, a decision that the local community need to make. So um, uh, you will see us take different decisions um, in different circumstances according to what different communities want and different interests. But we'll always try to balance, as I said, the interests of you know, nature uh, with the interests of the economy and, and other, uh, uh, other factors. And as I said, I often feel a bit like the BBC, you know, they get it, they get it from, you know, whatever the BBC do, they're going to be criticised from the left or from the right. And uh, I think we do take sometimes some pretty tough decisions. I think, uh, you know, a decision to turn off someone's water abstraction licence is quite a tough decision because that, that could put a business, uh, you know, at risk of going out of business. Um, but we're prepared to take those decisions when we think there's no alternative to protecting uh, nature. Um, we will take people to court and get them... Uh, seek to get custodial sentences if we think uh, they have uh, willfully and deliberately and massively damaged the environment. And I think that's a pretty uh, tough sanction. As I say, I think you get further um, with encouragement and partnership, by and large, than you will get with a big hammer. But we're prepared to wield the hammer when we need to. Thank you. Um, question for me, question from online, and I'll take one from the room. Um, what difference has Brexit made to the way the Environment Agency works? Mm -hmm. And there's an anonymous question online. Um, how concerned should we be that post-Brexit deregulation will harm environmental protection? And then there was a gentleman here with a question. The green shirt. Hi, good morning. Thank you for the words. My name is Rodrigo Manrique. Considering the climate change is already a reality, and it seems that I agree with you that the most powerful tool is influence uh, the public perception because that will lead to real action. But in reality, there is a disconnection, I believe, between the, the, the real danger and the actions that has to be done because if we expect that the people will change, it will take more time that the reality demands it. The floods this summer mm. has taken us Britain as, re as a reality mm. right now. So my question is, should we, using like COVID, for example, as another global phenomenon, mm -hmm. shouldn't do a little bit more regulating, like another, another tightening the regulation, starting to do in a general cap on emissions? Mm -hmm. I do understand the balancing, but, yeah. and, the, and the, the second question is, if so, is it a political process only, or the environmental agency should be leading that process? Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Great question, thank you. Um, so Brexit, uh, Bre so whatever you think about Brexit, uh, it has happened and it's a, both a risk and an opportunity depending on what we do. And uh, I think uh, I'm more interested in using it as an opportunity to um, create better outcomes uh, for the environment than worse ones. Um, we have, uh, the government has a bill, um, the retained EU uh, legislation bill in the House. 
um, which is designed uh, to uh, zero out um, uh, all uh, EU legacy uh, legislation by the end of next year, unless the government decides to retain or reform individual pieces of law. Um, and uh, I think that done right, um, this is a massive opportunity for nature and for the economy, because uh, I'm on record as saying there are, there are many things about some of the inherited EU regulation that we are implementing which are suboptimal. Uh, I won't bore everybody about the Water Framework Directive, but the Water Framework Directive is a classic example where there's lots of great stuff in there. Um, uh, British experts wrote most of it. It has helped drive improvements in water quality in our rivers and seas, but it has certain defects that push regulators and resource into uh, areas that aren't making much difference, keeping us away from intervening in the areas where we could actually make a bigger difference. So that's just one example of where I think with thoughtful reform, we could actually end up um, with better outcomes for the environment, probably um, uh, better outcomes for, uh, for the businesses that we regulate, and probably, done right, lower resource costs for the Environment Agency, which is worth having, given that we're all going to be resource constrained. So, um, you know, whatever you think about Brexit, let's treat it as an opportunity and let's look for ways in which we can make things better um, uh, as, a, as a result. Can I just jump in and say, yeah. you say done right. Is it yeah. going to be possible to do it right by the end of 2023? Well, that, that, that is a good question. Um, uh, and that's, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's ultimately a matter for the government to decide. It is a very big project. So um, uh, there are various estimates of the amount of uh, retained EU legislation, much of which is in the environmental space, but four or 5,000 pieces is one estimate that I've seen. And uh, DEFRA, um, the department I work most closely with, uh, own the largest proportion of that. And um, you know, working through each of those pieces of legislation and asking, you know, do we want to keep it? Do we want to reform it? Do we want to drop it? That's a serious endeavour, and that will take a lot of resource. So um, can it be done um, by the end of next year? Um, I mean, you can do anything um, uh, you know, uh, under a deadline. Uh, would it make sense to take time to do it well? Yes. So let's take whatever time we need to get it right. But I think the process is a good one. I'm sorry, and I interrupted. So you had you'd answered the, the, the question um, about, about Brexit and regulation. Yeah, and I was, um, you're going to, yeah, and I was yeah. going to answer the question. I, I think that the, 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 so the sort of big, big question was, and I sort of empathise with what you said, is isn't there a gap between the, 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 the pace and extent of what we need to do and reality that everything is happening too slowly? Um, and then specifically, you asked about carbon uh, regulation. Um, so... Uh, Yes, you know, there is a gap between um, uh, where we would want to be um, as a nation and as a world on mitigation and adaptation. And uh, every day we fail to take action, um, that gap is going to get larger and the consequences are going to get worse. So you're absolutely right to be, you know, concerned about it. But um, I don't think we should be, we should despair. I don't think we should be um, downhearted because if we say, this cannot be fixed, um, then we just, we'll just turn people off from, from intervening. Um, uh, what I want, my, you know, my pumpkin, is I want eight, 8 billion people to think that we can uh, tackle the climate emergency, because I think we can. I want them uh, to work with their governments and others to, 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 to do that. Um, so are we going far, as far and fast as we would like? No. But are we seeing the key ingredients of success in tackling the climate emergency? Yes. So what, what needs to be true? 
uh, you need governments to collaborate at an international level because it's inherently a global problem. They are. I mean, COP is not perfect, but it's the best process we have, and it is making progress. Uh, two, you need countries to be taking action at national level to, to tackle their own carbon emissions and adapt their own infrastructure and economies to the changing climate. That is happening in this country. It's happening in most other countries. Um, and it's happening more and more as we demonstrate that you can do these things without damaging your economy, that done right with the right policy interventions, you can grow the economy. Um, and the third thing that needs to happen, which is where I get back to my wand and my pumpkin, is you, you need ordinary people to be saying, this is a really big issue and we want governments and we want business and we want NGOs to do something about it and we're going to do something about it ourselves. And that, that is happening too. And even in the last five years, I've seen, I've seen more and more of all of those actions. So, you know, the ingredients are in place. I think we can, we can crack the issue. Carbon, um, we do, as I said, um, we already play a role as the Environment Agency in regulating uh, the carbon emissions of big emitters. The um, UK um, uh, emissions uh, arrangement that we, we run, um, emissions trading service, allow, it's a cap and trade system, so it allows big emitters like steel, steelworks or aviation companies they have a limit in the amount of carbon they can burn. Uh, if they, if they uh, exceed that limit, we find them a lot. Um, uh, they can trade uh, their allowances to get down, which helps them financially. Um, and over time, we would expect the caps to come down. So that's a good example of a kind of, it's designed by government, we didn't design it, but it's implemented by the Environment Agency. So that's a good example of what you're talking about, a carbon scheme that is incentivizing people to build down the amount of carbon that they're emitting. Thank you very much. I've got a question that's coming in online, another anonymous question about whistleblowing. <laughs> uh, whistleblowers have an important role to play in preventing environmental damage, yet last year the EA received only eight whistleblowing disclosures, this person says. What more can be done to ensure that workers are reporting environmental concerns to the environmental Environment Agency? Thank you. Um, so a lot of, again, gets back to the, the power of ordinary people. Um, a lot of what we do, um, we intervene because people have told us. People from outside the agency have reported that there's something to worry about. So, um, classic example, a um, uh, week or so ago, um, uh, we, working with the Merseyside police and the local authority, uh, we intervened to stop a massive uh, dumping of waste in a Liverpool warehouse by an organised criminal gang. And it was very sophisticated. They had they'd cleared the warehouse, they'd installed their own electricity, um, they put up signs outside to make it look like it was a legitimate uh, waste operation, and they were about to dump hundreds of thousands of tonnes of waste uh, and leave it, making millions of pounds of profit, causing lots of uh, environmental damage, health risks to the local community, and a massive bill to taxpayer to clean up. And we intervened with the Merseyside Police and the local authorities to stop them before they managed to stuff this waste into the, uh, into the uh, warehouse. And we knew about it because it was reported to us via Crime Stoppers. So an ordinary member of the public became uh, uh, concerned about what appeared to be going on. They told us and we, uh, we worked with the police to deal with it. So that kind of you know, public, uh, people keeping their eyes open and telling us when they see things going wrong, um, is fantastically valuable in terms of uh, what we do. We get hundreds of thousands of those reports every, uh, every year, and we'll always look at them, and if there's substance to it, uh, we will uh, always seek to uh, act. Um, whistleblowing within um, organisations, it's important that people ought to be able to um, whistleblow, including inside the Environment Agency. We have what I think is a pretty good scheme, um, uh, which uh, encourages people, if they see 
anything that the environment is doing, in their view, wrong uh, to, uh, to blow the whistle. Uh, and we have a process to investigate those, uh, those reports. I think, um, you know, whatever the figure was, eight or ten uh, whistleblowing uh, instances a year, which is about right for the environment agency, that feels about right. Um, zero tells you something's wrong. It tells you that you haven't got a system that encourages people to feel comfortable whistleblowing, right? So I would be worried if we had zero whistleblowing inside the environment agency. A hundred or a thousand would also tell you that something was wrong. So I feel reasonably comfortable that we have a good system and we do take very seriously um, uh, those reports. And we have, uh, on occasion, we always follow them up, and we have on occasion found that there was substance to those whistleblowing allegations, uh, including against sometimes environment agency staff, and we have taken appropriate uh, and robust action when that happened. Thank you very much. Are there any final questions in the room before we draw that to a close? Um, Alex Knight, I work at the Institute for Government. Um, my question is about the mass crustacean die-off in Teesside. Uh, is the environment agency confident it's not caused by dredging for the new Freeport? It's a really good question. It's a, it's a good example of um, what it's like to be a regulator now, that, that everything that we do is, is done under the glare of public scrutiny and public challenge and different members of the public and experts uh, asserting different things about what's going on. So for those who haven't followed this, this is a mass die-off of crabs in the northeast. Uh, there are various potential um, causes of that. Um, no one, including the Environment Agency, has yet satisfactorily identified a specific source that we feel comfortable uh, with, but the government has announced it will have another uh, investigation and we will contribute to that. Um, and, you know, we will go wherever the evidence takes us. You know, if, if it's dredging, then we need to do something about it. Uh, if it's uh, someone dumping a chemical into the sea, then we need to go after them. Um, but everything we do has to be evidence-based and we will follow the evidence wherever it leads. Thank you very much. Well, I think you'll all agree that's been a fascinating hour of discussion with Sir James. Uh, will you join me in thanking him for his speech and his question? Thank you to everyone for joining us today in the room and online. And a reminder, the live stream will be available on our website. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you.